Hello and welcome to Corona Stories, the place where people can be open and honest about their feelings surrounding Covid, lockdown and other related matters. In this episode, Sylvia and I spoke to Patrick Fagan together and we had a very interesting chat. There's some scary content in here, but we hope that you'll enjoy the conversation. Hello, Patrick, and welcome to Corona Stories. Hi, thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you on here. You are Patrick Fagan, and I have Sylvia here with me. We're doing a joint interview this evening, and the date is the 14th of April. So you are a behavioural psychologist, is that right, Patrick? Yeah. Yeah. And what what is your employment just now? Uh, So I run a behavioural science consultancy with a couple of other people. um, And I also do freelance consulting uh, in behavioural science. So I run research and um, give advice basically on how to use psychology to make messaging more effective and to understand people um, and I'm also a part-time academic um, so I'm a part-time lecturer at a couple of universities too. Okay and you were employed with Cambridge Analytica is that right between 2017 and 18? Yeah so I was the lead psychologist there for eight months until the, the sticky end okay. uh, in, in spring of 2018. Okay and when people hear the words Cambridge Analytica, I think they have negative associations. So what is it that what what did Cambridge Analytica do that made everyone so cross? Uh, so Cambridge Analytica was a data analytics and digital marketing company. Mm-hmm. So what they did was to um, segment audiences into different psychological groups and to do that often using data um, for you know the big famous example being Facebook data but the, the company actually didn't use Facebook data all that much um, uh, and then once you have those different audience groups uh, sending them different messages that will resonate with their psyche so if you uh, have a really neurotic group so with quite high negative um, emotion and you want them to vote for a political candidate, then you send them messaging that really taps into their fears. Whereas if you have, um, let's say, an agreeable, friendly group, uh, you send them messaging that says the candidate is a family person, is a really nice person. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's about understanding the psychology of different groups and sending them online ads that will influence them. Okay. And um, so, so, yeah, people uh, didn't like that for a few reasons. One, uh, which is fair, is that people don't like the idea of being psychologically manipulated against their will. Um, Mm -hmm. So the idea that someone, uh, whether it's a politician or a brand, understands really deep things about you, your personality, your your prejudices, your insecurities, your fears, um, and using that against you to get you to do what they want. People don't like that because people like to feel as though they have free will and autonomy over their own lives. Um, And also people like to feel that they have privacy. So they don't like the idea that such deep things can be read about them from their data. Um, But really what Cambridge Analytica did wasn't all that different to many other data analytics and digital marketing firms. And in fact, Barack Obama did a very similar thing. He used Facebook data to send personalized messages in 2012. The thing, yeah. to be honest, that people didn't like about Cambridge Analytica was that they worked for Trump in 2016. And lots of people, uh, not for undue reasons, uh, don't like Trump. And so they just don't like the idea that this company uh, helped him win the election. And I guess there is an element of it as well, whereby the information or the data was gathered without people's expressed consent as well, wasn't it? Yeah, um, that was part of the narrative. So, so one of the big, le- I kind of knew this before, but one of the big lessons for me was don't always trust everything you hear in the media. Um, well, at, at all, really, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you two have. learned that this year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so 
the the use of Facebook data was really overstated. Um, Cambridge Analytica did get their hands on some Facebook data and analyzed it for personality, but they didn't really use it to the extent that was reported. Um, but there are there are or certainly were companies that that did do that. Yeah, the issue was that those companies not only would scrape your data when you take the the test or use the Facebook app, but also they would scrape all the data of all of your friends as well. And yeah, people particularly objected to that. So yeah, consent was a big issue. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the point is, for the purposes of this conversation, especially, you understand how people's minds and psychologies can be manipulated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not necessarily in their best interest. And so that's why we wanted to speak to you this evening. And there's been a few things that I've listened to on a few of your articles that I've read that I found really really interesting about the psychology of all this and the particular area of focus for this conversation this evening was masks because I think it's fair to say Sylvia and I both have become preoccupied with masks mm. and what is happening to people yeah. when they wear masks. Um, so have, you, so have we, you observed people behaving differently when they wear them you mean? Well, yes. I mean, I think Christine and I both have exemptions. And um, my my exemption has maybe been a bit more recent because I've been having a lot of panic attacks. So when you're a bit panicky, uh, putting a face covering when you're a bit hyperventilating is not very helpful. Um, and so I guess from my perspective, I've seen a big change in how people react to you when you're exempt versus yeah. when you were managing to wear a face covering yeah. um, and yeah christine's exempt for other reasons as well well i've i've not i've not been wearing a mask long term now and i just observe the most bizarre behavior in people when they've got masks on and i I wondered if I was imagining it at first, but I'm definitely not imagining it, I can say. Um, but the thing that I, if we can go back to chronologically, in spring last year, we were being told by our government that there was no point in wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Masks were completely pointless and counterproductive and there was evidence yes. to increase the spread of an infection. All that. And most people, we're saying then, no, we shouldn't be wearing masks because masks are counterproductive. Do you remember that, Patrick? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. Absolutely. I remember I remember the Surgeon General in the US saying, do not wear face masks. I remember him saying that very clearly. And was it Jenny Harris, is that her name, um, the Chief Nursing Officer or something? She was on the BBC and she did this whole sort of 10 minute piece on why masks were a disaster and you shouldn't mm -hmm. wear masks. Yeah, I'm not, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist or anything like that. But from the, the research that I've seen, it was pretty unanimous up until a year ago that face masks don't really do anything, you know, except, you know, if you're a surgeon or a doctor and you don't want to get spit and bacteria and open wounds. Um, other than that, they don't stop viruses. Um, and then something happens. And now uh, in the past year, there's research coming out saying the opposite. Um, yeah. And, you know, science adapts and changes, and that's fair enough. Uh, but it just seems strange for it to take such a big change. I think, under... I think there's also been a lot of recent research papers as well that have shown that they really they don't, don't make work. difference. Yes, that they yes don't exactly. Work. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think there's a clear, well, decisive paper that makes it no. clear whether that there is a benefit to wearing them <clears throat> but the thing that's interesting this might say something about me was that in april last year i started wearing a mask <laughs> when i went out to shops because i thought i'm not sure i believe that masks make no difference and <laughs> right right maybe it does make a wee bit of a difference i'll just wear one so when i went to the local shop i wore a mask and um then Suddenly, in the summer, they mandated them in Scotland on the 10th of July. 
we had to wear masks in shops and it was mandatory. And I just, I remember thinking at that point, this is just not right because mm. we're at the bottom of our infection curve here. And if they're going to mandate masks now, there'll never be a reason to get rid of them. And, you know, it's just going to cause lots of tensions in the community. We've been telling people not to wear masks. Now they're telling them to wear masks. <laughs> Well, I'm quite interested in the confusion that that caused in people's yeah. minds. Yeah, so, yeah, as I said, you know, science is all about testing hypotheses and not being orthodox, not that you would know it uh, these days. Um, so the idea that, you know, scientists can change their mind is fine. However, it seems to have followed a pattern that we're seeing with everything else, like lockdowns and vaccine passports, where first of all, the authorities deny and they say, no, don't do that, um, or we're not going to do that. Then they soften up a bit and they they recommend. So, you know, they recommend, oh, you should wear a mask if you want, or um, businesses can implement vaccine passport schemes if they want. Um, and then finally they mandate and make it obligatory. Um, and that, that uses some persuasion principles. It uses... Uh, the foot in the door technique mostly where you just um, you start with something small and then once people are committed and invested and bought in then you can turn up the dial so that's why i'm worried for example with the vaccine passports when they say it has a 12-month sunset clause and it will only be for a few venues um they're just saying that so they can get their foot in the door and then once the people have bought into the idea in principle then they can turn up the dial um yeah. so that's one thing and then uh, the other thing you said was confusion and, uh, yeah, I mean, confusion, fear, guilt, anger, these are the tools of brainwashing, frankly, you need to, uh, break people down psychologically before you can, uh, use that suggestibility to implant new ideas, new behaviors, new habits. Um, but to begin with, you have to really kind of produce a psychological chaos as it were and, and cults do this religions do this for example by preaching about fire and brimstone or getting uh people in the congregation to handle snakes um in in torture and in chinese and korean brainwashing they do this um they starve people and uh or in guantanamo bay they play heavy metal music really loudly all the time uh, anything like this to kind of confuse and overwhelm people um it's even called in psychology the disrupt and reframe technique, just confuse people and then they'll be much more suggestible. So I don't have any proof the government is doing that, but you know, but, it makes sense. Uh, and even if they weren't intentionally doing that, hmm. that's the effect. So they tell people maths don't work, they don't work, they don't work, they don't work. And people are like, oh, masks don't work. And then they come out and say, oh, we're going to actually mandate masks. And everyone's like, what? Hmm. <laughs> but what? amazed me observing it especially in the summertime I can't remember when this would have happened in schools but we in Scotland were instructed one day that we were supposed to wear masks to pick up our kids from school even outside and it was like but masks aren't mandated outside so what are you doing and the funny thing was that people who had never worn a mask to pick up their children before so the day before that instruction was given Nobody was wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the day after it was given, everybody was wearing a mask. And it became this intensely moral issue. Yeah. So people in schools, you know, this was happening across the country, because I've heard people telling, people have told me this from across country, that, you know, suddenly parents were outraged that there were parents outside the school not wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but you weren't wearing a mask yesterday <laughs> outside the school. Yeah. What so, do you think is going on there? What, how did it become so quickly such a moral, a moralized issue? Well, there's a psychological model called the behavioral immune system. And it suggests that we have evolutionarily hardwired responses to disease and pandemics and contagion and disgust. Um, so, for example, in countries with higher prevalence of disease and parasites, uh, they tend to be more collectivistic cultures on average. Um, so when there is a disease, 
people respond behaviorally by being more uh, collectivistic, more mm, insular, less tolerant. Mm -hmm. So one way of thinking about it is when people are made to focus on purity, they become Puritans. Um, and so they want everything to be clean and, and in, ordered. Um, so that's why that's why uh, fascist kind of regimes, the Nazi party, they describe um, their enemies in terms of like disgust. So they call them cockroaches or, or vermin or rodents or whatever. It's a real kind of um, disgust sensitive puritanical way of thinking. And so, mm -hmm. so for somebody to be showing their face, and I've heard people say, oh, wear a face mask because you wouldn't go outside without underpants. Um, like equating your, your bare face to your genitalia, which is odd, but it speaks, I think, to this puritanical mindset that's come about because um, of the effect that, that pandemics have on us psychologically. Okay. It's almost shaming, isn't it? It's shameful to expose yourself publicly, mm -hmm. um, but that's been transferred to your face. Yeah. Maybe it, it reminds the people wearing the mask um, of things they're not really comfortable being reminded of. Uh, and what, what do you mean by that? Um, maybe to see someone not wearing the mask makes them feel stupid for wearing it. Uh, you know, subconsciously reminds them that maybe the mask doesn't really do anything and it is just a token. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing, hypothesizing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen things, um, you know, on people's social media where, you know, they've said, oh, I saw a gathering of people outside and none of them were wearing masks. Mm. And I'm thinking, but they're outside. <laughs> You know, yeah. and I, I don't think they're talking about like a, a massive crowd, you know, where people are packed in. They're maybe just talking about a group of people who are probably, you know, not bunched up like sardines in a tin. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, what, what's the issue with that? But, you know, it's almost like immediately, well, they're, they're the germ carriers. They're, they're the virus carriers, yeah. you know, they're exactly. selfish. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think remember as well, people are full of negative emotion. They've been literally kettled. So they've been trapped inside their house with no release. You know, they can't go to the pub or go to football matches. Um, so they've been trapped and then they've been the heat has been turned up through this constant, endless fear and stress. Um, so people are just kind of bubbling full of negative emotion and it needs an outlet. Um, and that's a really scary time because that's mm -hmm. that's where scapegoats come in. Um, and so often in these circumstances in history, it's the quote unquote unclean who are scapegoated. Um, and all of that negative energy, that frustration and fear is kind of directed and vented onto a particular target. So okay. that, that could be part of it. But also um, wearing the mask might make people a little bit more aggressive because they feel disinhibited. Um, it, it's a bit like how people can be trolls online because there's they don't feel their identity is connected to their behavior as much um, so that might be why they if if they are a bit more aggressive when they're wearing the mask that might be why well it is true because you know I was thinking about this recently when you know people weren't out wearing face coverings previously you kind of thought they were up to no good um, yeah. you know, like and you know, where they wore it really low or a baseball cap, you were like, oh, I'm not sure about them because I can't see their face. Because to me, a face is a sign of open openness and mm -hmm. honesty yeah. and identity. And it's amazing how quickly we've come away from that to thinking that it's fine for people not to be identifiable. Yeah, it is strange. I think I guess another point I would add is to be fair to the to the mask wearers. Um, if you believe that masks work and they prevent people from dying, then I suppose you would be angry when you see people not complying with that. Um, so I did some research, and I found the biggest predictor of compliance with COVID nineteen stuff was believing that the regulations uh, do anything. 
Uh, so the more effective you think they are, the more likely you are to comply. So I, uh, I suppose that 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 would explain it a bit. Um, Louis, how is that? Um, I mean, I think most people can see inconsistencies in the regulations mm. and the picture that's been presented to us, and you know, people are like, it "Just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Why am I allowed to do this, but doing almost an equivalent thing?" Is not okay so i can meet my friend in a park to play but i can't have that friend into my garden to play on my swings at home yeah <laughs> just doesn't seem like consistency so um, you know how has all these policies been sold what is the psychology behind that that has led people to believe them so implicitly um it's it's called paralogic uh, so it's basically Orwellian um, doublethink, uh, where okay. where you where you can believe two things that are contradictory, and logic doesn't matter because they're just kind of repeating phrases and slogans, and and they're not really concerned about. They don't really think about whether there's any logical um, integrity to them. It is more just kind of parroting things. So, is there a kind of psychology of people? that makes them more likely to be drawn in by that and mm -hmm. some people to be more immune? Uh, yes. Um, I'm trying to remember what it is. Um, so one of the, the main things to do to avoid being brainwashed is just not to engage at all. Um, and even if you're fighting and you're angry, Anger is just as useful for breaking someone down psychologically as fear and guilt are. So I think people who are just kind of quite relaxed, checked out, don't even watch the news rather than watching the news and getting angry by it. I think they've probably got a better chance of resisting. Um, well, well, that's the thing. They don't resist. They just don't even engage at all. Um, uh, there is There is a book I've read and he does lay out the things that make people less resistant, but I can't remember it. But I do remember from the research I did, there are certain personality traits which predict um, compliance, at least with coronavirus stuff. So um, would that be helpful? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, so people who, so as I said, the, the main thing by far is believing that the, um, the restrictions work. That's the main thing that predicts compliance. Um, there are a couple of demographic things. Uh, people who comply are slightly more likely to be uh, better off financially, slightly more likely to be female and slightly older on average, but they're quite small effects. Um, and then people who comply in terms of personality, uh, they are more agreeable, slightly more agreeable. So that means they're more kind of cooperative and non-confrontational. Uh, so more likely to do what they're told, which makes sense. Now, in the press, you often see this fun as people who don't wear masks are psychopaths. They have disagreeable personalities. Uh, I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. I think it's people who are more cooperative and compliant are more likely to comply. I don't think that has anything to do with empathy. Um, then uh, another thing is uh, need to belong. So people who have a high need to belong, so they need to feel part of the group, they don't like feeling left out, uh, they worry whether other people like them or not, they, as you can imagine, are more likely to um, comply. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. I mean, when did you first start to notice the sort of psychological game being used in coronavirus um from from day one really uh the the fact that i think what really clued me in was the use of very simple statistics uh simple statistics which don't really tell the, the whole story so when they showed a uh, number of positive tests which they call cases they're not cases but number of positive tests as an absolute number but they wouldn't show it as a percentage of tests taken. Um, yeah. You do more tests, you get more positive results. Like that's so obvious, that's, that's per capita. <laughs> that's, that's something they teach GCSE maths. You, you'd think it would be probably even before GCSE. 
you thought that it would be. Was, do you not? Do you not think the death knell was sounded for that logic that you're using there when Donald Trump said it? So Donald Trump said the reason we've got so many cases in the US is because we're doing so much testing. Yeah, we're doing more testing than anybody else, so we're getting more positives, which of course was a totally reasonable thing to say. Yeah, but because he <laughs> but said he it. He got absolutely ripped apart yeah. for saying yeah. it. I mean, he occasionally got it right. <laughs> and I, I think oh. that was one of the occasions, whether it was because of good understanding or just luck, that was a true thing that he said, but you couldn't apply that to everything he said, but it's a shame to wipe out everything yeah. on the basis that he had... Well, the day after he said that, I realised that it had been a really bad thing that he'd said because basically that argument was dead now because Donald Trump had said it, and yet it was so obvious. Like you're saying, my seven-year-old could come up with that argument. That's how obvious it is. Mm. So is that mm. what is that what tipped you off? Mm. Well, I think my tipping off was a very gradual process, which probably did start about a year ago but yeah I wasn't quite as attuned to all the psychological manipulation that was going on which I now do see very clearly um, and partly that's because in the summertime I stopped watching or seeking out any news yeah because I just realized that they were lying to me all the time yes yeah my my fiance I, actually so we stopped watching tv for lent and um, we just haven't <laughs> plugged it in since then. Um, and actually, you realised how nice that was. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. And she actually, she's at her parents' house, so she sent me a text because they're watching the news. And she said, um, yeah, it was a news story where someone's like, why did my dad die? I'm so sad. It was so unfair. And then it panned to him celebrating his 97th birthday. Um <laughs> They're, they're either really old or really um, fat and you know obviously every death is a tragedy and I don't want old or obese people to die but it, it's so obvious so but naked I mean, this propaganda when... they're on the same level of tragic every death is sad to their nearest and dearest yeah. absolutely but you know when somebody's 17 18 3 4 it's inevitably much more tragic mm -hmm than somebody who's 97, 98, 99. Well, I, would actually, I would argue that the death of a 97-year-old is never tragic. It, you know, and old people die, and that's when, if you've had the privilege of living a long life, you know, you get to 97, you die. There's, it's, and I think actually that's part of the problem, that we've, we've attached the same level of tragedy to all deaths weirdly in the last year which is not right we can't live forever didn't um <laughs> was it lord something he was on news night and he basically said that um yeah and he got pillaged for that he was talking about the value of a life yeah wasn't he and he was saying and what they i think what he got into trouble with was that there was a, a lady in the audience or something who had cancer and he said, so you've got cancer. And so, you know, you're, as soon as you got that diagnosis, your life was shortened by that. Mm. And so your life, you know, if you die next week, that's not as tragic as if a four-year-old dies next week, was his point. Yeah. And he got absolutely torn apart mm -hmm. for saying this. The guy with Nicky Campbell, wasn't it, on... That Sunday show oh, or something. Yeah. Well, it was absolutely shameful the way that they misrepresented mm -hmm. what Lord Sumption did, and I just I thought, thought age was the lady. Well, she was. She wasn't an an old lady, but the, he was right. He was saying you've already got this terrible diagnosis, and it's not saying that we're not sorry that you've got this diagnosis and it's dreadful. But the fact is, he was talking about in the context of COVID as well. I think what he was saying. If you are unhealthy for whatever reason, you are already more susceptible to COVID, but you're more susceptible to lots of things. Yeah. But this hyper-focusing on COVID all the time has so, completely deranged us, I think. So I, I read a study recently, it was a, a priming study, where they found that 
if they make people feel confined, which they did in this experiment, um, funnily enough, by lowering the roof of the room that people were in. But when mm -hmm. people felt more confined, um, there was more item specific processing. So what that means is it's focusing on specific details rather than the bigger picture. So missing the wood for the trees, basically. Um, okay. So yeah, being people being confined is potentially making people focus more obsessively on, you know, the R number or the number of COVID deaths rather than the bigger picture of quality of life and these less concrete um, things. Um, and then also uh, related to that, uh, there's a lot of research on confinement induced autism and obviously not interacting with people socially also uh, can induce autism. Um, and uh, is that like true autism or is this... I need to have a look. Uh, it may, yeah, it may just be short term. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, in kids, then it, it can last. Um, but there's some research where they've looked at the effects of solitary confinement on adults. Um, I'm not sure if it's permanent or temporary, but, but anyway, the, the circumstances we find ourselves in may be kind of, it may be a vicious cycle in that it makes us have this more item specific processing rather than thinking about these subjective things like, um, quality of life, you know, doctors, when they're making prescribing decisions, they think about how long this person will live for if you prescribe a certain treatment, but also what the impact of their quality of life will be. If they have to come into hospital twice a week to get a big injection, then maybe it's not worth it. But it seems like quality of life for the whole country has completely gone out of the window and we're just obsessively focusing on this one metric. And so I guess that sort of solitary confinement sort of aspect of things is almost applicable to the decision makers as well. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a vicious cycle if if they're also living very isolated lives like we all have during lockdown then it makes it harder for them to make policies for the bigger picture because they're very focused on covid as well well i think you know people like chris witty probably have that more um shall we say more item specific processing mentality anyway and i would I was wondering whether politicians might be suffering from egocentric bias, which is where they're unable to really deeply think about things from other people's point of view, as we all are. Um, but the fact is that politicians, their jobs are safe. They uh, get to go out and go to new places and meet their colleagues face to face each day. So I wonder whether they can really truly empathize with what it's like for the rest of us being locked and trapped and worrying about work um so maybe if they had if they could understand what that was like they might make different decisions i mean in in a way i think that's going back to masks that's almost applicable because we see uh, pictures of politicians in the scottish parliament all the time mm -hmm. and they're sitting without masks mm -hmm. on by and large yeah and yet they've now come up with a policy for uh, school children to wear their masks all day in secondary school and you think well you don't do that do you actually understand what you're mm -hmm. doing to and children i would like to ask them why do you not do that why are you not wearing a mask in parliament i know what the answer would be because they're having to talk and they're being picked up on a camera and it's really hard to understand what people are saying especially on camera when they're wearing a mask and so they think that it's an intolerable inconvenience for them to wear a mask um, but, but the idea that it's intolerable for school kids who are trying to learn how to socialize and interact and breathe freely and concentrate in class well that doesn't come into it because they because of what you're saying it's an egocentric bias these people don't think beyond themselves they don't appear to no i don't think so and you know all of these however many hundreds of thousands of school children are just numbers and data points to them um i think mm -hmm. that's really one of the deep issues with behavioral science and nudging and and all of this is that people are just seen as data points and that all they care about is shifting the needle on a very specific behavior uh, or outcome without thinking about people's souls basically what, what what this is doing to people as humans um 
yeah, and on face masks, I don't know if you saw that video. Um, I think it was from the Department of Education. There's a really creepy video about schools where they were saying uh, they want children to be paying attention 100% of the time and to go from classroom to classroom in corridors that are silent. Um, it's very bizarre, and I think it, again, speaks to this puritanical mindset that's developing. But one thing that really struck me was uh, when the kids and anyone, the teachers or anyone is wearing the mask, you can hear them audibly struggling to breathe sometimes. You can hear them kind of gasping and uh, desperately trying to get air through the mask. Um, that cannot be good for anyone, least of all children. Um, I, worry, I worry what it's doing to cognitive development. Having even, even if oxygen levels are just reduced a tiny, tiny amount, but that's, you know, to do that all day, every day across millions of people, of course, you're going to see effects. Um, yeah, A, on cognitive development, but B, on fear as well, because the amygdala has CO2 receptors in it and the higher CO2 levels in the blood literally make people scared. So again, I think there's this vicious cycle of wear a mask, you feel scared, you want something to make you feel less scared, for example, wearing a mask. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit worried we're in a bit of a spiral, you know. So what, what have the worst nudges that you've sort of noticed been in this pandemic? Um, the, the worst is probably the fear messaging. So just uh, trying to make people as scared as possible. Um, to make them comply. So in protection motivation theory, there are two things basically that make people do something, a protective behavior. There's threat. So people need to feel that the threat is serious and that it was likely to happen to them. And there's efficacy, which is where you need to feel that you can do something about it and that thing you can do will work. Uh, and the government has been completely focused on fear, just trying to scare people as much as possible. And that's so, at its heart, it's just unethical to distress people, no matter what your goal is. But also, um, it's probably not that effective because people are scared anyway. And also, people react to fear by rejecting the message um, is one way to not be scared. Um, but then thirdly, it's hurting people. It's having a bad effect on mental health, almost certainly, to, to put people in this state of fear. There's loads of research showing that stress and fear are bad for you mentally, physically, and they make you more susceptible to disease, ironically. So um, yeah. one might also almost suspect it's deliberate if you're really cynical. If you're very cynical. And, I mean, it, it could just be incompetence as well. Yeah, it could. Well, they're very competent at making people scared. <laughs> but maybe incompetent in doing that so where, where, where did this sort of um when did we start introducing these nudging and behavioral psychologists into public policy is this is this a modern phenomenon or is it something that has a big history oh yeah i mean even i think socrates talked about how to use emotion in rhetoric when you're making public speeches to uh, influence people. So it's not new by any measure. Um, in terms of nudging specifically, it's probably last uh, five, 10 years, it started to really take off. So I think about 10 years ago, the nudge unit was formed uh, in the cabinet office. Um, and it's really kind of grown exponentially since then. And, and what prompted this nudge office? Um, I, I don't know actually what prompted the forming of it. I think, so it was in David Cameron's government. Uh, I think just the research was there. I mean, businesses were starting to use it. Um, so I was at a behavioral science consultancy myself before the nudge unit was formed uh, and they were using it, you know, to get people to buy more crisps or peanut butter or whatever it is. Um, and I guess the government just saw that and saw an opportunity to, um, get people to pay their taxes on time and things like that, which I think it started with the best of intentions, but you know what they say about the, the road to hell. Yeah. It's also the unintended consequences yeah. when you give people, when you create a role like that, and then it's moderately successful, it grows arms and legs. Mm. But I've noticed, 
I think the first time that I noticed, I'm not sure what the nudge unit if, or if it had any involvement in this, but something that I noticed back in 2016 was how, to me, irrationally terrified a lot of people were about Brexit. Mm. Yeah, it was like I mean, it was like Y2K. I mean, it really was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. People got, and people really were behaving like the sky was going to fall in. And, um, and then the was, sky fell in with COVID while Brexit was happening and well, it exactly. wasn't important anymore. I know. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that happened, and I myself was very susceptible to it, as it turned out, was when Trump came to power in 2016, or when he was elected in 2016, uh, the, people just seemed to lose their minds over that. Mm-hmm. And I include myself in that. I was terrified when Trump was elected. And now I look back on that with a lot more circumspection and I think I know. think I first noticed it at the Scottish referendum yeah. for independence and you know I think the SNP party actually labelled David Cameron's campaign as being project fear didn't they? Well that's exactly what they said about that was what they called Brexit as well I think that was more the Remain side though they called it project fear that yeah the sky would fall in if we voted for yeah. Brexit but it was almost like it was exactly the same argument yeah. happened again. Yeah, I'm not sure if people in England and the UK generally were aware of that, but the Brexit debate was basically exactly the same as the Scottish independence debate had been in Scotland two years earlier. Yeah. It was weird. I wonder, I do wonder now how much the nudge unit had to do with that. Is, is there anything... Is there anybody out there that is responsible for the ethics of um, behavioural psychologists nudging whatever sort of forum they're in? Um, Not really. There's some psychological bodies, um, uh, but no, not really. And I mean, I'm sure you saw Gary Sidley's letter to the British Psychological so- uh, Society didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So right. I think they're kind of um, toothless as it is. Uh, there is um, uh, an association, a new one, the Global Association of Applied Behavioral Scientists, which the idea is to make people who sign up to it be ethical. And if you're not ethical, you, you lose your, your subscription, but uh, it's 75 pounds a year. So you have to pay for it. and. If you look at the people who are on it and who do it, you know, it's a it's their thinking of what ethics is, which I guess is what Sage have. You know, it's very orthodox, and uh, it's a coronavirus is definitely real kind of ethics. You know, so if you as a behavioral scientist were to suggest it's not, you probably would lose your your registration with them. I would guess. Mm. So I mean, yeah, in terms of a body to do it, it kind of feels like institutions are crumbling anyway. I mean, so I don't know how useful a body would be because they all seem to be pretty useless and not trusted or respected to an increasing degree, you know, from the BBC to Cambridge University, all of them. Institutions are only effective in um, propagating the COVID fear message. Mm -hmm. That's all they're effective at doing. They seem to be pretty effective at that, but I think they're. I, I think, think they're using up a lot of their goodwill, though. I think it, they'll pay for it eventually. Well, that word "eventually" is interesting. How long do you think it takes to turn people's fear around? Mm. Can it, like, let's say the nudge unit listens to this podcast and they feel deeply ashamed the next morning when they wake up and they say right we're going to reverse course we're going to unscare people about covid now Mm -hmm. can you do that uh yes i mean is it yes i mean they i mean look how quickly they were able to uh to get people standing six feet apart and and all of these other behaviors Is it reversible though? Does it work the other way around as easily? Uh, or is it harder to nudge people out of, out fear of fear than it is to nudge them into fear? Is one quicker than the other? Well, yes, yes, because fear is a very strong, powerful, immediate emotion. So it's very, we're very sensitive 
to potential threats. So it probably is a lot easier to turn to turn on than to turn off. But there are ways to turn it off. I mean, obviously stop doing the messaging, but you can use um, coping mechanisms uh, like humor. Humor would be a great way. They could have a comedy show about it. I know that sounds trite, but but it would help or some kind of comedy festival. Um, there are other defense mechanisms. Um, having some kind of ritual, so a big COVID is over day. You know, we have a big, a big uh, festival, and it's cathartic, and it acts as a milestone, um, and we can all move on. Um, but my concern is that maybe, maybe we're overstating the power of the nudge unit, and maybe what we're witnessing is more of a social trend. Um, you know this this hysteria to coronavirus didn't happen in the past when there were other pandemics so there's something about society today which enabled this to happen um yeah and there's a few books which say about how civilizations and generations go in cycles um basically they go through spring summer autumn winter um and we're currently in winter and it's going to be unpleasant uh but you know, can only go up from here. Well, no, it will probably go down from here, but then it'll go up from there. Oh. <laughs> Aren't you a bundle of joy, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> um, good news. It's getting worse. <laughs> well, I, well, I, although I've seen the light a little bit about a lot of the things that I feared before in the last year, my husband laughs at me because he says I've just found another the sky is falling in mm-hmm. thing to be scared of. But I do worry about the next thing that's going to come along. Mm, me too. Because I think, well, do you? I, because I think, I think like you say, there's a lot of talk about the nudge unit. And I myself have spoken about the nudge unit to a certain extent on this interview. But... I do kind of roll my eyes a little bit when, you know, skeptics talk about the nudge unit because I'm not sure how powerful that is. I think people have been primed for this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm actually interested to hear what you think of this, a lot of the big talking points in the news recently, so we've had Trump and we've had we've had climate change for decades and we've got all this concern about racism and misogyny and the me too thing and there's a lot of nagging us about drinking too much and eating too much and we don't do enough exercise I feel like this Mm self-loathing has set in with people we just seem to think you can't even watch a David Attenborough documentary without feeling terrible about yourself by the end Mm -hmm. of it the microplastics in the ocean and the you know, turtles getting caught up in plastic bags. And I'm not saying all those things that I've just listed here are serious and, you know, very imminent concerns. I'm not saying people shouldn't be worried about them, but it's just been relentless for like the last 10 years. Well, yeah, I think number one, people, uh, especially kind of, um, it seems Europeans, but it seems to be kind of hardwired to feel guilty about things. So it used to be, from a religious point of view, it used to be original sin, and now it's um, white privilege. But we just need to feel guilty. Or alternatively, as well, you could consider that we just there's we have um, sensitivity to fear and threat, but we live in a world where there is no sensitivity. Sorry, there is no threat really anymore. Um, so we're always kind of looking for it. Um, the 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 demand for for threat and danger is bigger than the supply. Um, so we're always looking for these these kind of things, but um, that's one thing. But then also I think technology, social media has a huge role to play here. Um, there's mm-hmm. some research showing over the last few decades, both narcissism and external locus of control have increased. Um, so what that means is people feel more special, but they also feel like they have less control over the world. Um, and what these two things do together is bring about the sort of victim mentality, a victim consciousness, where everyone feels um, the victim of the world. They're not getting what they deserve. It's unfair. They don't have any control. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that goes back to your comment about the person who was complaining because her 97-year-old grandfather had died yeah. of COVID. Yeah. 
you know, this shouldn't have happened to me. Mm-hmm. My 97 year old grandfather shouldn't have died. <laughs> this is so unfair. Well, you said that she said that. This is, it's so unfair. Mm-hmm. Like it's a sort of personal slight or a personal attack. Um, whereas in the old days, people, old people just used to die of viruses and we went to their funerals and we moaned them and we said, oh, we really miss that person. And didn't I, I, I'm thinking of my grandmother who used to say, you know, Anna, I'll see you again if I'm spared. You know, yeah. it was almost like every day was a blessing yeah. rather than, you know. Yeah, my gran always says, I'll see you you know, next time, if God spares me, that's what she says that every It's really interesting you say that because I was going to ask if you think religion has anything to play with it or, or faith at least, because um, people have become less uh, religious or, or faith oriented. Um, and so maybe people are more afraid to die. Hmm. But they may be also, I, I certainly think that COVID and the restrictions has taken on a religious, mm. um, almost like a personality. It's like a religious. Yeah, you see that as well with with, yeah. with QAnon um, and with mm. I call the COVID stuff FluAnon because I think it's so similar. It's kind of a cult, um, and yeah. uh, the woke people on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, it's definitely a religious tone to it. Mm-hmm. Well, my gran is very religious. Normally, when she's allowed, she goes to church every, you know, she goes to mass every week. And, um, but when you ask her how she is, she always says, I've got one foot in the grave and the other's on a banana tree. <laughs> <laughs> but she's 93. And, you know, when my grandparents died, my other grandparents died last year, or 2019 actually, aged 89 and 95, there was no suggestion that their deaths had been tragic or you know, we were all heartbroken when they died and we really missed them. And, you know, it was traumatising losing them, especially having had them for so long. But there was no tragedy in it because they were very elderly and they'd had a good life. Nobody felt hard done by or... um, Do you think maybe lack of family, like the breakup of the family unit and um, the, the decline of local community might have an impact as well because... People have less purpose and meaning, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we live in rural communities Mm. that are very um, active. Well, normally they are. Yeah. But, you know, pre-pandemic. And it it doesn't seem to have stopped. Yeah, no. What's happened. Um, You know, all the village halls are all closed up. Mm. Um, so, you know, everybody's very much obeying the rules yeah. and everybody's very much more isolated. Mm. Um, and it, it is horrible. Yeah, um, because our community, I mean, our village, well, we would be in there three or four times every single week. Um, at, there were always events happening. There were things on every weekend at the hall, both days, Saturday and Sunday, there was always something happening. And that's just completely died now. So you've written a, an article about the vaccine passport. Um, and so what, what's your sort of standpoint on vaccine passports? Um, it's a very, very bad idea. Um, I, ca- I can't be more firm in how bad of an idea it is. Um, uh, there's, there's two things really about the vaccine passport. Uh, and it's not going to be temporary. I think probably most people realise it will be as temporary as the lockdowns have been. Um, and there will be creep from it to other things. Uh, so there's two things which are really frightening about this. The one is that it will be a kind of digital ID. It will become a digital ID that all of your data is connected to. And this isn't conspiracy theory, mumbo jumbo. The World Economic Forum are very open about this, about the fourth industrial mm-hmm. revolution, that everyone will have all their data connected to a central ID um, and predictive analytics and behavioral science will be used for that data. They say this openly. Um, 
yeah, yeah. so that's the first thing is all of your data is going to be connected to this id there's no such thing as anon anonymity anymore uh, so all of the websites you browse uh, will be connected to it and you see for example the imf saying that your credit score should be linked to your web search history um uh yeah so it, what yeah well i didn't know if it said that yeah what yeah I, your credit score yeah so your browsing history should be used to determine your credit score so that's just one that's just one um pool of data is your, your browsing history there's your your movement data so where have you been who have you been near uh, who have you talked to online? What have you said? What emotions were you feeling at a certain point in time? Uh, what products have you bought? Where did you buy them from? Uh, what time of day and what days of the week did you buy them? Uh, all of this stuff. And then you layer in biometrics, which are taking off. So, you know, your fitness data, your heart rate when you're watching a certain video, um, your voice sentiment when you're talking to certain people. What did you say and how did you say it? Uh, your facial expressions. Um, all of this data. And then in the future, you know, we have technology like Neuralink, uh, which will just read your mind directly. So all of this data will be collected on you and anchored to this digital ID. And so that's the first part, which is frightening. The second part is the social engineering. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's just the first part, Patrick. Well, yeah. And then the second part is what yeah. they do with it, which is social engineering the ability to allow or deny people services based on their status. And so at the minute, you could say, fair enough, it's just if someone has a vaccine or not to get into a football stadium, but it can very easily and will very easily change from viral ideas, sorry, viral diseases to viral ideas. So if you've been saying or doing the wrong thing, uh, then you will have a bad score. And so you can be denied access to places. So it's basically going to lead to the death of free speech. Well, I mean, yeah, then you can you have a look at the, the vaccine passport, what it could be used for and match that up with all these other trends that we're seeing socially. Um, you know, in Scotland, you have that crazy hate crime bill, which means you can go to prison for saying something in private in your own home. Uh, you have all these people being cancelled and deplatformed. You know, in, in the lockdown skeptics world, we have real credible, serious scientists and doctors being silenced because they, they're not going along with the orthodoxy. So you have that very, mm -hmm. very frightening trend and then combine that with um, the, the all of this data collection and behavioral science predictive algorithms and the ability to be uh, given punishments or rewards depending on your data is very, very, very frightening. So how do people stop this? Uh, I think it's what I'm calling the long march away from the institutions. Uh, so just stop using it, you know. Uh, so I'm trying to use a smartphone as little as possible. Uh, you know, I'm only human, uh, but I try to use a dumb phone as much as I can. I've stopped using Amazon. Mm -hmm. I've stopped using Netflix. Uh, I'm going to homeschool my kids when I have them. Uh, I'm going to try and grow some of my own food so I'm not dependent on the system. I think that's the only option really is just to try and withdraw from it. Some people, you know, just to be devil's advocate, might say that that sounds incredibly extreme, that that sounds very conspiracy-ish. Uh, which, which bit? <laughs> which bit, sorry? You know, that, that you know, that you we need to disconnect from institutions to such a severe level hmm. um well that's that's my opinion that's where my head's at you know i'm not saying that's right for everyone um or you know for anyone else but just for me that's that seems to be the logical conclusion because i can't personally um go along with that um that and live that that kind of life where, where you're trapped in chips like, like cattle. Kind of I don't think that kind of life is going to be good for anybody's well-being. No. Well, except for the, uh, the oligarchs at the top. Yeah. And I think that people who listen to somebody like, I mean, I would have, I would have reacted a certain way, which is different to how I would react now to you saying that a year ago. But 
I do wish that people would listen to people like us now mm. who say these kind of things and just register how seriously alarmed we are and wonder why are they so seriously alarmed? Well, because to me, uh, like even just the notion, one of the things that really terrifies, well, the thing that terrifies me about vaccine passports, obviously all the things you've just said are very scary, but it's just the end of informed consent for medical treatments. Yeah. You know, if, if you can't go to a football game because you're not being vaccinated, well, that is immediately an incentive to you to get vaccinated and not, you know, that sets a really informed alarming... consent should be purely made on sort of well-being issues yeah. and your medical history and your medical views. It shouldn't be related to what you will and will not be allowed to do. Like being able to order your favourite burger from your favourite <laughs> burger shop. And yeah, the only reason you should ever have a medical treatment is because you think there's some benefit to yourself from that medical treatment. Well, I think it's, all, um, it's also... Is much more all-encompassing than that. Yeah, I think it's also very dangerous to have a hundred percent compliance with anything. Um, so imagine if a hundred percent of the population uh, smoked—I don't know—say were made to smoke, and then um, you find back when they used to think cigarettes could be good for you. Um, I'm not equating vaccines to cigarettes, but I'm just making the point that you need to have random mutation for evolution to work you, to have everybody in complete lockstep doing the same thing is quite dangerous um and it i think it probably inhibits progress in many ways because you need that kind of you need the outliers um as i said take take the vaccines uh, i don't know whether they're safe and effective um but what if they're not does what if that tiny minuscule chance that they're not that we want to keep, say, 1% of the population aside who don't get the vaccine just in case? Wouldn't that make sense? Why do we need everyone? That just doesn't seem like a good idea. Even if the vaccines are 100% amazing and wonderful, you still want a small proportion of people not to take it so that you can tell that the mm. vaccine was amazing and wonderful because yeah. you've then got a, to compare them with. Um, I think you've I've heard you speaking about that before about like heretics in society in the past. Yeah. If heretics hadn't existed during times of religious turmoil in this country, we would have gone down an extremely like a, a religious extremist mm -hmm. path. Yeah. It was because some people wouldn't go along with it that religion was moderated and tolerable. Yeah. Um the gadflies, you wrote that, did you not write an article, Society Needs Its Gadflies? I did, yeah. Yeah. See, I've read everything you've written, <laughs> Patrick. <laughs> yes, so um, Socrates um, came up with the idea of gadflies. So the, these flies yeah. that bite the horse of the, the public and stir it into action. Um, and in the end, they killed Socrates, so... <laughs> uh. Yeah, that's not such a good bit about it. But it is a really good point that these really irritating people who just will not submit and won't follow rules and annoy everybody, they actually play a really important role yeah. in society. Yeah. And they they keep they save society from itself. Yeah. Um, but in societies like China, I mean, all that stuff that you're talking about with the vaccine passport, that's not hypothetical. China's doing mm. that to people now. Yeah. That's how the social credit system works in China. And nobody can step outside the lines because you just can't. Well, I'm hoping and that's not. I'm hoping it won't take off because, as I said earlier, China is more of a collectivist society. Um, and East Asian, it's interesting that East Asian cultures were wearing face masks anyway before coronavirus, but also the Confucian idea of face is uh, from East Asian cultures. I thought that was an interesting correlation, that the idea of sa yeah. saving face in public um, and also wearing a face mask in public are linked in those cultures. Um, whereas in the West, we're more kind of individualistic. You know, we have a bit more maybe William Wallace kind of um, attitude sometimes. So I'm hoping that uh, people will just stick to fingers up to the vaccine passports, but we'll have to see. Mm, yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add, Patrick? Uh, no, that was really interesting.
good chat. Um, well, thanks. Thanks very much for giving us some of your time. And yeah. um, we've enjoyed chatting to you. Likewise. Um, and certainly we've learned a few new sort of psychological terms and strategies that no doubt we will go and Google in good faith yeah. thereafter. Um, but yeah, thank, thanks very much for, for talking to us. Yeah. yeah, really thank you. You've been really generous to give us an hour and a bit of your time tonight and you've got a burger to enjoy <laughs> now. My pleasure, thank so, you. Yeah, I'll hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, of course. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Patrick. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you found it interesting and that you'll join us again soon.